0: Hello and welcome to the AK-47 Podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey and I am a professor of Russian East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the book Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. And today I am going to be reading a kind of curious document that I think I hope you listeners will find somewhat amusing. So there's a little bit of a backstory to the thing that I'm going to read today, because it comes from a U.S. government document from May 29th, 1956. And it is a report which was issued by the American House of Representatives Committee on un-American activities. So this House committee usually goes by the abbreviation HUAC. And HUAC was responsible for many persecutions of left-leaning Americans in the United States, you know, for purging the federal government in the late 40s and early 50s uh, of, of people with any kind of leftist sympathies, in fact, HUAC, they were much worse in some ways than Joseph McCarthy. We remember McCarthyism, but in fact, the HUAC committee was far more perilous and really ruined a lot of lives. So this report that I found, it is called The Communist Conspiracy, Strategy and Tactics of World Communism, Part 1, Communism in the United States, Section B the USSR. So this is an official report. You can find it online. It is, you know, it is an official government document. It is freely available. And what I think is so interesting about this document is that it collects together various exhibits to help Americans understand the communist conspiracy, the ideas of communism. And, and it does so by reprinting in English various articles and essays and speeches of people, you know, like Stalin and other communist leaders, but also very interestingly of Alexandra Kolontai, which is how I stumbled upon this reflection on an essay that she wrote called Letter to a Young Comrade. Now, this essay had been published in Spanish in Madrid. And when Isabel de Palencia, who I've mentioned on this podcast before, wrote her biography of Alexandra Kolontai in 1947, she included an English translation of the full text of this essay in her biography. And it turns out that the House Un-American Activities Committee also republishes this essay In its 1956 report, with a brief introduction to the American reader about who Alexandra Kolontai is. And then following that, there is an excerpt uh, from the foreword to her book, Red Love, and then they reproduce this essay, Letter to a Young Comrade, in its entirety, and they cite the Isabel de Palencia book as the source of the English uh, translation. But what is really wonderful is the description of Kollontai that the House Un-American Activities Committee provides as a kind of preface or introduction to the American reader of who Alexandra Kollontai was. So over the next couple of episodes, I'm actually going to read Letter to a Young Comrade because I think it really wonderfully captures a lot of Kollontai's thinking about love and marriage and her sort of Marxist Hegelian dialectical view of romance Uh, And how our love and our relationships would be different under communism. But also this description is just really, really kind of fascinating because it allows you uh, to see how the Americans, obviously, after this total anti-communist hysteria that swept the country in the late 40s and 50s, how the Americans viewed Alexander Kolontai, particularly because, of course, in the 1950s. We have very conservative gender relations here in the United States. Most middle and upper class women are housewives stuck in the kitchen with their appliances. It's a really fascinating moment to read the ways in which men in the American government viewed Alexandra Kolontai's writings about free love or comradely love, or the ways in which traditional bourgeois monogamous heterosexual marriage would be challenged by the coming communist revolution. So this is the introduction, as I said, provided to Alexandra Kolontai as a way of, of giving the reader a sense of who she was before reprinting two examples of her work as part of this U.S. government report on the communist conspiracy. So here goes. Alexandra Kolontai was one of the best known women Bolsheviks. Despite her infantile left wing deviations of the twenties, and despite the ideological incorrectness of some of her writings, she was adroit enough to survive the purges. Kalantai's reputation in the non-communist world stems principally from her novels and shorter writings on the proletarian attitude towards love and sex. In 1927, while she was Soviet ambassador to Mexico, one of her novels was published in English under the title Red Love. The Russian edition bore the more truly proletarian designation, Love of the Worker Bee. Only the foreword here is printed. The novel itself deals with the love of a dedicated Bolshevik woman named Vasilisa for Volodya, who was nicknamed the American because he had spent his youth in the United States. In time, Volodya becomes converted to Bolshevism. Later still, Vasilisa and he establish a household. Unfortunately, Volodya's American petty bourgeois proclivities soon betray him and he succumbs to the anti Bolshevik Nepmen love of luxury. True worker bee that she is, Vasilisa abandons him to his frivolous anti Bolshevik mistress. Vasilisa then returns to the more worthy cause of organizing workers in a textile factory. At their best, Kolontai's compositions elaborate upon the communist idea that everything, including sex and love, must be subordinated to the cause. At the very worst, they advocate all sorts of casual relationships. It was these later aspects of her writings that got her into serious trouble with the Kremlin masters. No less an authority than Lenin himself frowned upon the so-called glass-of-water attitude towards sex, which some people, more bohemian than Bolshevik, maintained to be the correct interpretation of Marxist doctrine on the family. According to the glass-of-water concept, sex amounted to nothing more than a passing gratification. Quote, When I'm thirsty, I take a drink of water and then forget about it. Unquote. In the early years of the revolution, many fluttering scoundrels, as Soviet propaganda later disparagingly called them, were not satisfied with only those casual relations which might help them to advance the revolution. Instead, they abandoned themselves in the most alarming manner to reckless promiscuity And by the year 1934, abortions in the city of Moscow outnumbered births three to one. And to the West, Hitler was relentlessly building his Nazi military power. Kolontai's Letter to a Young Comrade, Exhibit Number 24, represents one of her efforts to modify her views of love and sex so as to bring them into line with changing communist requirements. In the letter she concedes that there is a place for lasting true love in communist society. The ever-paramount rule, however, remains unchanged. All sexual union or expression of romantic desire must be directed toward the superior good of the world revolution. Because Kolontai's ideas on love and sex are no longer acceptable in the USSR— the great Soviet encyclopedia gives them the silent treatment in its sketch of her life. It concentrates instead upon the accomplishments of her career as a Soviet ambassador. So that's the introduction that the House on american Activities gives to the reader about Alexandra Kollontai. And I think there's a couple of really interesting things to think about in, in, in reading this introduction, particularly before we go ahead and jump in and read the actual essay itself. So in the first place, I think that the American government is attributing to her this glass of water theory, which is in fact incorrect. In none of Kollontai's writings is she talking about the kind of quote-unquote reckless promiscuity that she is accused of talking about here, or that Lenin accuses her of, of speaking about and writing about. In fact. As you know from listening to this podcast, she spends a lot of time making a really important distinction between so called winged Eros and wingless Eros and kind of a random hookup culture or, you know, just sort of having sex for sex's sake. She would really truly consider wingless Eros. And she's pretty consistent about that. She thinks that love and uh, mutual attraction should be the, the paramount of paramount importance in any relationship between men and women. She just doesn't think that love and sex have to be bound by the institution of marriage, which is clearly very scandalous in the United States in 1956. I think the other thing that's quite interesting about this is that the Americans are at pains to point out that her ideas about love and marriage have also been rejected by the Kremlin, and that the Kremlin has taken a particularly negative stand towards these writings of Kolontai. So this is the American government, at least, you know, on its surface, acknowledging that somebody like Alexandra Kolontai, who they call one of the best known women Bolsheviks, Uh, and who was adroit enough in in their language to survive the purges, that she was also in her own way pushed out of the central kind of party power because of her somewhat unorthodox views on love and marriage. They also talk, interestingly, about the fact that Soviet citizens, as far as Americans are concerned are much more promiscuous, which they find a problem. And obviously they have really negative views on the abortion rate, which in 1934, in fact, was quite high because as we know from listening, again, you've been listening to this podcast, you should know that between 1920 and 1936, Abortion in the Soviet Union was essentially legal and on demand for any woman who wanted one. It's only Stalin with his 1936 family code that reverses that decision. So from the American point of view, the very idea of women's emancipation, it's not even mentioned at all in this introduction to Kolontai. They don't talk about any of her work as Commissar of Social Welfare. They don't talk about her creation of kindergartens or her creation of cafeterias and public laundries. None of the things that she was trying to do to kind of reimagine the family are even mentioned. The only thing that they care about is that she had a diplomatic career, which is important, that she had these rather unorthodox views about love and marriage. And that she was pushed out of the center of power because of these views and her, quote unquote, infantile left-wing deviations in the 20s. That's what they're referred to in this, which is obviously her siding with the workers' opposition against Lenin and against the new economic policy. So it's kind of fun to go back and actually look at the way that the US government Is representing some of these communist leaders in the 1950s when they're actually, you know, actively trying to scare Americans away from communist ideology, which they perceive as, you know, pervasive and prevalent in the United States. So I do think that it's really relevant that they are talking about communist ideas of the family communist ideas of sex and love as a real negative outcome of communist ideology they're trying to scare americans away from communism by talking about the fact that women will be more sexually liberated uh, and that that somehow will undermine you know the american way of life And um, there's a great book called Homeward Bound by an historian named Elaine Tyler May, which precisely deals with the way that the American family and traditional gender roles were kind of produced in the context of the Cold War, particularly in the 1950s, and that Soviet women's emancipation was kind of held up as something very negative compared to the nice domesticity of American women who are home baking cookies for their kids and taking care of their husbands and not having to go out and and actually earn a living and therefore being very economically dependent on, on their husbands. So over the next Two episodes. I am going to read Alexander Kollontai's essay "Letter to a Young Comrade" as it was published in English from Isabel de Palencia's book, so that you get a sense of how frightening this kind of narrative about changes in the family and changes to love and changes to sexual relations how it would sound so threatening to Americans in the 1950s. And and I really want to talk about the sort of Cold War context in which these writings are being circulated and reproduced and circulated. I also think it's really interesting that Alexandra Kolontai also becomes very popular in the United States in translation in the 70s, right around the time not surprisingly, of the American women's movement. Here in the 1950s, she is being held up as a negative example of the kinds of terrible things that communism will do to your society if you allow this ideology to spread. Whereas in the 70s, Kolontai's writings are circulating amongst feminists and other types of women's activists precisely as a way to link struggles against patriarchy with struggles against capitalism. So Kolontai has this really important staying power. And, you know, one of the things that I've been doing on this podcast is really trying to make Kolontai relevant to people in 2021, to our lives today. But I also think it's occasionally interesting to go back and look at the times when Kolontai's writings, you know, as they were translated into English, were circulating in the United States for other reasons at other periods of time. And, you know, I have a lot of articles about her from the 1920s, when she was, you know, ambassador to Mexico, and then later to Sweden. So the way that the American press represented her is really interesting. There are many articles about her in the 1920s. There are articles about her during the First World War, when she was in the United States and she was giving this big lecture tour, but then again, she appears, you know, in the nineteen fifties as kind of an example of all the bad things about communism, and then in the seventies as a kind of paradigmatic, you know, woman of uh, representing the sort of ideals of socialist feminism. So it's fascinating to think about all the different ways that Colinet has been used historically in the United States, and I would be really curious to see. How her work gets used, translated, and circulated in other countries outside of the United States, particularly in places like Mexico or Spain or even Germany or Sweden, where she was based for quite a long time. So anyway, that's an introduction to a letter to a young comrade, which I will begin to read in the next episode. One last thing I want to mention, I know that I have recently seen a surge in listeners uh, to the podcast. I'm not exactly sure why that's the case, but I can see that there are many more people listening to the podcast now than there were before. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I am uh, still in possession of quite a few of these stickers that my daughter designed for the podcast. And if you are interested, please send an email Uh, with a screenshot of a review on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on. And uh, I will send out or she will send out some stickers to you uh, if you email alexandra.colontai.podcast at gmail.com. I'll leave link to that information to that in the show notes welcome to the podcast. I'm really delighted to have some new listeners, uh, especially those of you who are tuning in from overseas internationally. And thank you so much for everybody uh, to everybody for listening. And as always, uh, please keep up the good fight.